Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Rodney Cameron, CEO of Autism Queensland and Deputy Chairman of Blue Energy Limited. Well, it's great to have you along to the Arate Podcast to listen to this interview today with Rod Cameron. I'm regularly approached by C-suite executives looking to move their career out of corporate, potentially into the not-for-profit sector, and Rod Cameron is an example of somebody who's been able to do that very successfully. And so I'm sure you'll get great value out of listening to this interview today. But before we get to that, let me just briefly introduce myself to you for those people who aren't familiar with who I am. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives and non-executive directors looking to achieve their next role. So if you're actively looking for a role or alternatively looking for executive recruitment within your organisation, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Now, let me introduce to you Rod Cameron. Rod Cameron is a man who wears many hats. His full-time role is as CEO of Autism Queensland. In addition, he's the Deputy Chairman of Blue Energy Limited and an Executive Director of Capital Advisory Services. Rod has a Bachelor of Administration with Honours a Master's of Business Administration, and a Master's of Financial Management. He's a certified practicing accountant and a fellow of both the Australian Institute of Company Directors and the Australian Institute of Management. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Rod Cameron. Okay, well, Rod, uh, welcome to the RHA podcast. It's uh, great to have you along, and I'm looking forward to this chat. Perhaps... uh, to begin with, for the people who are listening in, could you let us know your current range of professional responsibilities? Thanks, Richard. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm the CEO of Autism Queensland at the moment. I also uh, maintain some uh, professional uh, roles outside of that. One of them, uh, I'm a director of Blue Energy. I'm the deputy chairman there. Okay. I also uh, uh, operate a small, uh, what you would call a boutique of uh, financial advisory company as well, which is catering to the corporate end of the market. Okay, so uh, let's uh, uh, touch on each of those one at a time. So tell us uh, about Autism Queensland. Autism Queensland, it's uh, I guess the peak body here in Queensland dealing with uh, autism clients aged from children right through to adults. Okay. So, there's a lot of things changing in the sector, but here in Queensland, we're a larger provider of support and services to that ASD uh, segment of the community. Okay, and so how big would the business be? Our business is turning over about uh, 20 million. We've got staff of somewhere between 200 and 250, depending on uh, wh- whether you're putting in their casuals and volunteers as well. Okay, and uh, what are some of examples of the range of services that you provide to your clients? So we have we have an early intervention, that's the littlies, who are sort of anything from about 
two years up to about uh, five going to school. Okay. We have two schools, one at uh, Sunnybank and one at Brighton. Right. And then we have an adult program okay. as well. But we also provide a range of other services throughout the uh, in the indigenous communities as well, okay. all across Australia. In fact. Right. Okay. And so um, the schools, uh, so the entire student body are children who are on um, who have autism. Correct. Yes. Right. And so, how many students would they get at each of those? Uh, we have about nearly seventy here okay. at Sunnybank and at Brighton. We have slightly less, but about about, about sixty. Right. And um, and so, if a, a parent has a child with autism. Typically, you know, they're living quite. A parent would be living quite close to the school that they send their child to. Do you have people who live a long way away who are sending their kids to your schools? Y yes, we do. The, the system here in Queensland works. Uh, those kids are usually integrated into the normal state or Catholic school or whatever school denomination it is, and they then come attend here two to three days a week, depending on. And so they're still integrated into the mainstream. Okay, but they come right. and spend a few days here. And so they. Uh, they're transported to your school from their regular school? Yes, inter interestingly, we have our own bus service. Okay. And we pick them up as far as the Gold Coast. Uh, right. Uh, on the north side, going out to further suburbs as well. Okay. Caboolture and places as far out uh, as that. Okay, oh, very good. Well, we'll certainly uh, come back and talk more about that a bit later. And so, and what about you said your deputy chair of Blue Energy? Correct, yes. And so, what tell us about Blue Energy? Blue Energy is a small uh, oil and gas explorer. It's uh, it's it's uh, been involved in the coal seam gas th uh, sphere, and it's also probably more conventional oil and gas as well. Right. So it's a small player. It's really about finding reserves and, and then uh, on selling or developing those projects. Uh, to the larger companies. Okay, and how long have you been involved with them for? It's been about four years now. Okay. So it's been, it's been quite a while. Right, so on the one hand, your day job uh, with looming NDIS has got all sorts of external market conditions, no doubt, making it challenging. And then working in the oil and gas sector, given where <laughs> that's at at the moment, plenty of challenge there too. Certainly. You know, there's obviously they're quite different sectors. Sure. Uh, but my, my reason for coming into uh, working for Autism Queensland is because I want to give back to something to the community and I've been very fortunate in the corporate world, so now it's time to give something back. And whilst my skills, technical skills, might seem quite different to, you know, I'm a bean counter by trade. Right. Uh, and, uh, but those skills, I think... Uh, transition very well into the NDIS world when a lot of it's about sector consolidation, sure. a lot of mergers and acquisition mm -hmm. and that type of work. So I hope to be able to bring those skills into a, mm. into an environment which perhaps hasn't seen that type of uh, background in a, in a normal sense. Yeah. I'm sure there are people in there with that background because you're starting to see the sector change quite significantly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I only look at ourselves. We Last year, uh, I think we recruited six um, CEOs for uh, not-for-profits, and in almost every instance, uh, there was just a, an acceptance that the world is changing dramatically, and the traditional uh, executive who worked in the not-for-profit sector, whilst also often having excellent heart motivation, you know, towards the cause, um, uh, needed greater commercial strategic. Um, uh, experience and and so you're probably a good example of somebody who's come from corporate into this space in order to take it through this next phase of what's happening with not-for-profits. 
Yes, I think it's quite a specialised area that mergers and acquisition. And mm-hmm. Most people through their careers don't get the opportunity to have gone through that. I've probably been through about, I think the last count was somewhere in the order of about $20 billion worth of transactions. So right. that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a, lot of, a lot of transactions and sure. perhaps more than that, the ones were, which weren't successful as well. Okay. And just uh, to cap off, you mentioned that you also have some other private interests. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, about uh, probably 10 years ago, I set up a boutique corporate advisory uh, business and, and my, my occupation in the corporate world before then was largely in project finance and mergers and acquisitions. So what I did was then step out of the ma- corporate mainstream, set up my own business, mm-hmm. was very successful, then brought in a, no- a number of partners. That business still exists at the moment, okay. but I'm not actively involved in that. I have uh, four other partners right. in Melbourne who are basically running it now whilst uh, I'm back uh, working for Autism Queensland. Uh-huh. So you're a busy man. Uh, yes, yes, it's usually pretty busy, but here keeps me pretty much focused. The, sure. the other side, it's uh, you know, it's very, very much in the background these yeah, days. Yeah, right. Oh, very good. Well, look, uh, I always like to start these conversations by going back to where it all began. Mm-hmm. So, uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about where you were born and you know your early family life, mum and dad, brothers and sisters, uh, early schooling, etc. Yes, well, I'm a, I'm a boy from the bush. Right. Uh, I come from a small country town called Texas, Queensland, which okay. is on the border of Queensland and New South Wales. Yeah. Uh, was born, bred there, went uh, uh, at least a year 10 in Texas and then had to leave. Okay. Uh, what Texas. did mum and dad do? My, my mum and dad, uh, my, my dad's owned properties all his life, so okay. cattle farmers. Yeah. So I come very much from uh, that rural on the property uh, side, but... Uh, thought was perhaps not a good long-term career. Uh, right. Ring barking trees and a lot of manual work tends to convince you that there's a bit more to life than hard manual labour. So I went away to high school at, at uh, Warwick, uh, Warwick State High. Okay. And boarded there privately. Uh, for, I boarded with the local uh, football coach. So right. I, I was lucky to be reasonably talented in rugby league so actually oh, so you lived in his home yes lived in his right. lived in his oh, home and went to school there okay and brothers and sisters brothers and sisters i've got three brothers and, right. and uh, one sister and what number are you i'm the second youngest so oh second youngest, youngest okay right and uh uh and they all went to warwick as well no well i was Texas being a pretty small town, I was probably lucky to be one of the few that actually went away to, okay. to school, and right. certainly in my family. Yep. Uh, my sister did go to Warwick for a little while, but she okay. didn't finish. The rest of my brothers either stayed on the land or went into a trade or, or into other occupations. Right, and so were you thrust into sport giving uh, who you were living with? Uh, yes, very much so. And being from a small country town, uh, that's all we had to do was right. really sport. And I was yep. lucky enough to have been reasonably talented and represent the state and rugby league and athletics. And that's how I, I guess I got to come to Brisbane a lot as a child because I'd always attend the state titles okay. in, right. in athletics. Uh, and uh, which when I, when I finished school, it was direct to Brisbane to start a career. Okay, and so boarded right through until the end of high school? Correct. Okay, and what happened from there? From there, I was, uh, as I say, I was into rugby league and I, that was about the time of uh, introducing the, the first professional rugby league and uh, okay. I played with uh, Norths in Brisbane for a period and was okay. lucky enough to be offered a contract 
in uh, in Sydney. Right. But between being made an offer and actually taking up the offer, I. I tore my cruciate ligament and basically right. didn't ever play uh, rugby league right. again. So I, I decided at that point that I had to use my brain right. instead of my brawn. That must have been quite devastating, I imagine, if you'd had your you know, sights set on a professional uh, rugby career and then an injury uh, took you out of the game. Well, at the time, it, it wasn't too bad, but clearly that it made a big change in my life. Sure. I, I guess I always thought I was reasonably smart at school and I thought I could apply my brain to something rather than brawn and right. I think it was I had to prove to myself that I was able to to do that and it was at that point as as a 21 year old that I actually went back to university okay. so I went back to uni as a mature age student right after a, a lot of uh, sort of uh, fun activities from leaving school through so in that time had you been earning your entire income from playing sport, or did you have jobs as well? I had a job. Back then, rugby league was amateur. Right. So it was really just at the professional level then, okay. and, I, and I didn't get to see that right. that side of the world. So really what was your day job? I was pretty much anything and everything. Okay. Labourer, Storman Clark. Right. There was nothing too flash about the work that I was doing. <laughs> Very good. And so uh, when you went back to uni, what did you go back to study? I went back to be a teacher. Okay. Uh, strangely enough. Right. I studied... Uh, uh, accounting and economics, right? And I guess when I was in that that journey, and I was going to teach uh, accounting and economics at school, that was the plan anyway. But okay. but I got lured to the other side. I found uh, that I really enjoyed commerce uh-huh. and, and finance in particular, uh, and made that deviation into the commercial world rather right. than going on and doing uh, the the tack on dip ed. I think that sure. was how you did it in those days. Okay, and then off to the bank. Yes, went, went and started my career with National Australia Bank, right. uh, which very quickly, tra- after I guess 18 months of good training there, went and worked for uh, Rio Tinto, right. which was in the mining industry. Okay, so what took you from the bank into a mining house? Uh, I guess when I came out of university, I, I studied economics uh, and accounting was my sort of sub. Okay. Uh, and I wanted to be a professional economist. And right. when I got into the, the bank, I realised I was going to be a retail banker. Mm-hmm. And that really wasn't what I wanted to do. Right. Unfortunately, uh, something came up with Rio Tinto, which okay. wasn't really in economics, but it was very different to uh, that retail banking side. Right. Well, that's interesting. I had uh, Nino DiMarco, the uh, CEO of Raw Flying Doctors, on the podcast, and uh, he wanted to be an economist as well. And uh, uh, but ended up in the bank, and uh, so it, it seems that um, uh, you know that's a, a fairly uh, logical career path for for people who want to go down that pathway. But you felt that you had greater opportunity uh, with Rio to apply the skills you'd learned at uni. A- absolutely, and it was more of a, I guess I would call it more of a sophisticated corporate world than okay. what I attached to retail banking. Even right. though I quite enjoyed the re- that that side of it. Uh, I, I want. I wanted to get. I, I wanted to, if I could work work overseas okay. as well. So that was the thing that was driving me, very early in my career. And did you get the opportunity to do that? Yes. Yes, I did. It was lucky. You know, I, I was very, very fortunate to have some great mentors when I started off with, uh, uh, with Rio Tinto. Okay. And some great experiences and travelled overseas for the first time. Right. And uh, it got, it whetted my appetite, I guess, to. The big end of town. Okay. 
So a couple of years there, and then to another big brand, Telstra. Yes, yes, worked for Telstra for a while. I, I, at uh, When I was at Rio Tinto, I did my MBA, and I guess I came out of my MBA like a lot of relatively young people thinking that they could take over the world. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I felt that I, I wanted to make my opportunities rather than let them come to me. So sure. I went to Telstra. It was my first manager's job okay uh, and uh, but that wasn't a long stay that was right at the beginning of Telstra mm -hmm. being uh, uh, privatized it was a new world and mm -hmm. I started in the mobile communications okay uh, setting up of that mm -hmm. which was really interesting but uh, I knew fairly quickly that uh, Telstra wasn't for me there were enormous amounts of cultural change which happened right. and it was quite a difficult environment stepping into that compared sure. to some of the other uh, so what what would you say was one of the the cultural elements that you acknowledged and said this isn't for me i i, I think that they were trying to make change but they couldn't really make change okay. there was a lot of structural adjustment which was very difficult to make mm -hmm. because of unions mm -hmm. and they were reducing lots of numbers and it wasn't a particularly pleasant environment but a lot of change that actually had to be made and as i was the sort of the, the last person in the door and seeing all of these things happening around me, I thought, well, you know, there's got to be there's got to be something which was a, a happy environment, right. happier environment than that one. Yeah, I must admit, uh, my first job out of uni, I went and worked for James Hardy, and uh, it was one of those places where, Richard, keep your head down, don't make any noise, job for life. Yeah. And as a young guy with uh, plenty of petrol in the tank, I couldn't hack that culture, uh, so I had a quick move as well. And so then off to Arco Coal. I'm not familiar with that brand. Uh, Arco Coal was is a very large organisation in America. Uh, Atlantic Richfield is a, is a very large corporate, and Arco Coal was the uh, coal um, here in Australia. They owned a number of assets here, mm -hmm. uh, but when I stepped into that coal industry, it was at a, probably the lowest cycle of the commodity prices. Okay. And it was there for a couple of years. It was a fantastic environment and lots of people I worked with there. I've worked with uh, subsequently as well. Right, okay. Uh, but it, it, the Arco ended up selling most of their uh, assets to uh, uh, Rio and other big players in the coal mining industry and exited because they couldn't make any money. Right. Steaming coal at twenty dollars a ton, uh -huh. which, if you look at today's prices, uh, or, or probably in the last few years, you know, that was hard to imagine how they were making a profit. Right, and then uh, the next, uh, then up to Sunny Cairns. Sunny Cairns, yes, for me, uh, that was my first general management role. And right, I was ambitious. Yeah, and I knew I had to step out of the mainstream, but it was a, a very deliberate step to get out into that. Uh, into the backwater, I guess, but mm -hmm. to be a general manager and having a series of, of managers and that working for me. I was, mm -hmm. I was still relatively young there, and it was a great experience. Uh, and Bob Manning was the, the CEO, who's now the mayor of, of Cairns. Right. So, okay. so it, was a, it was a really good experience. It, it, uh, it gave me what I wanted, mm -hmm. uh, and it allowed me effectively to get back to Brisbane when I stepped back working uh, was headed by a large American energy company. Right. So just before we get to that, I, I, you know, what's interesting, uh, in a 10-year period, you worked for five different employers. Yes. You know, sort of a year, couple of years with each one, which um, was probably quite unusual at the time. Um, 
Do you feel that uh, you know that amount of change um, benefited you in terms of developing your skills, or looking back on that, in hindsight, would you have preferred to have you know had a more traditional five years yeah. here, five years there? I guess if I wanted the the long stay, we'd have stayed at Rio Tinto. Right. And I made, it was very clear to me then that you had, around that time, that you had to make your own opportunities. Yeah. And I felt that you couldn't be there, you had to be there for long enough to have got the right skills and not be seen to have moved around too frequently. So it was roughly two years between each job that I went to, but it was the best thing that I could have ever done. There was a lot of risk, mm -hmm. but I was able to move on to great employers, translate that experience to the next one. Mm -hmm. I would have never have got that opportunity or that experience if I'd stayed in the one spot. Mm. And um, you know, certainly as a recruiter, when we're talking to organisations, there are some leaders who would look at a CV like that and say, oh, this person's a risk, you know, they're... Yeah. Uh, they they change too frequently. You know what what's your view, or how's that sort of um, uh, how does that affect the way that you look at potential employees for your own business um, who may have a CV that looks similar to that? Uh, I guess you tend to judge things a little bit by your own experiences. Right. And I certainly prefer people that have had opportunities uh, with a number of organisations, a number of different sectors, mm -hmm. because the wealth of experience that you get there uh, and uh, you know clearly you have to do your right due diligence sure. uh, uh, and if, but if you can demonstrate that, that you've got the right skills and got good track record there you can you can you can filter people and I certainly like to see people with a broad range of experience diversity to me is is the key mm -hmm. and while she might get a depth of experience in one area I don't think you get to see a lot of periphery mm -hmm. uh, that's my, that was my strategy, and it was a very deliberate strategy sure. back then. Well, and then the next role that you went into, you were there for quite some time, seven years with yes. Energy. Yes, yeah, that, 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 that's certainly right. That, that, that was, I guess, at the point where I felt I had all the technical skills that right. I wanted, yeah. and, I'll, and uh, it was such a challenging environment and so much fun to be in that mm -hmm. yeah, that was, I guess, the watershed of bringing everything together. Uh, and so NRG seven years. Yes. Yeah. What What was it about that organisation that was able to uh, keep you engaged and motivated to remain there, whereas the others hadn't? I guess I like change, and it was a project-based environment where I would be out of the country nine months of the year. Right. On projects anywhere from New York, London, okay. anywhere in Asia, Australia. It was perhaps the biggest change in the uh, energy sector or the electricity industry in Australia at the time. It was sales of assets and purchases. It was, every day was something different. Right. And uh, that that's what really kept me there. It was right. Because it, it was enormously hard work uh, and very taxing on your, on your home life. Right. But it was so much fun. And uh, as I say, perhaps... All, uh, uh, so many of my business colleagues and that later on in life I'd come across in, in that environment. Uh, it was a young environment where you had to work ridiculously long hours, but it was also quite flexible. The, the company uh, didn't live by the standard rules. If you were working overseas, they'd fly your wife in for right. a period. If she wanted to stay there, she could. Uh -huh. If not, they'd fly you back, or you'd come back to Brisbane for the weekend from, right. from Asia. Uh, so... 
money, that's sort of the cost attached to those things are only small bickies yeah. in the over, overall scheme of things. And right. That's, you know, where we put together a portfolio in seven years, it doubled every year for seven years and got to assets valued at here in Asia Pacific is somewhere around 20 billion. So it was a very large organisation which started with four people. Mm-hmm. And as CFO, I imagine uh, you know, those transactions, you would have had a very uh, strategic role in, in getting them through to success. Ab- absolutely. You know, it was everything from negotiating the debt facilities uh, with banks, you know, 20 banks in a room at one time, might be two or three people doing a negotiation. On some occasions it was working for three days without a break. Okay. Um, it was very, very hard work, um, but very fulfilling. Right. And, you know, you got to present to boards of uh, uh, New York Stock Exchange listed companies, you got to run basically the Australian or Asia Pacific uh, uh, region, you got to present to not just business cases. They were really what I would call that very high-flying world. Right. One of those things that you actually hope that you at least get an opportunity at some stage in life, and I was lucky enough to have seven years of it. And it seems that the complexity of that role was quite a departure from your previous work. I mean, you mentioned that you had done an MBA earlier in your career, but um, to suddenly be thrust into these major deals in New York, where you're, you know, you're pitching and presenting to, uh, you know, uh, the kind of uh, investor groups, etc., that you were. How, how did you develop yourself professionally to have the the breadth of skill to be able to manage that? Were you, did you have good mentors or a coach or you know what? I, what did you do? I think it was. Uh, baptism by throwing in, being thrown in the deep end. Right. But there were many exceptionally talented people that I worked with. And mm-hmm. I used to think that back those back in those days, I would say some of the legal brains, the accounting brains, would have been the smartest people in Australia. Okay. So you learn quickly mm-hmm. and you have to be able to keep up with that. It was an environment where there was, if you weren't able to keep up intellectually, or just the horsepower, you faded very quickly. There right. was always someone else there. But it attracted, I think, the best and the brightest. Okay. And uh, I think I learnt sure. from those people as much as anything. And uh, as I say, you just didn't get a time to think. You just had to do. You had to keep doing, doing, doing. And I think after about the first probably 12 months, mm-hmm. that was the grounding. And mm-hmm. Every transaction had the same principles, right. it was just different location, okay. the dollars might have been bigger or smaller. Right. And I can see from talking to you, you, you obviously, it was an exciting time of your life and, and uh, you know, you're quite passionate about that period. What was it at the end of the day that took you away from that if you were enjoying it so much? It, it, was, it was a burner. It was really burnout at the right. end of it. And it would happen at the time when Enron the implosion okay. of Enron, yep. and the company I was working with, whilst it wasn't an Enron, it was caught up in sort of a, a crossfire of some of those issues, it was the funding. And effectively the parent company went into Chapter 11 in the US, okay. and, and their way of getting out of it in the US was sell all of their foreign assets, right. which, were the, which were the cream of the crop. Right. So as a result, you know, we looked and sold all the assets we could okay. here in Australia. And that gave me the, the opportunity to get into my own business. Okay, right. So um, Unicomp, uh, Managing Director, that you started that business from scratch? 
Yes, I actually funded a couple of other uh, people who had a bright idea. Right. And uh, I, I, it was like a, a venture capitalist or a, or an angel. I stepped in and provided the funding, and then okay. after I and that happened before I got out of uh, NRG. Right. But when NRG folded, I went in there operationally, uh, set up the business. Uh, Got some more funding, got some more shareholders, and then actually end up exiting successfully out of it. Right, and so uh, having come from a large corporate uh, background, then going in and running your own small business, what what were the things that you noticed that were uh, required you to change in order to adapt to that kind of environment? Well, it was still about people and managing people and projects because it was a, we had developed a technology to. Uh, basically solve a problem which hadn't been able to solve before. Mm -hmm. So my job was to, once we'd got the technology working, was to find an investor who was willing to, to, I guess, allow us to exit. Mm -hmm. Um, So the issues in terms of, uh, you know, the technical funding issues and negotiating of agreements and that were the same as what I'd been doing for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. But yes, it was having to be very hands-on. I've always been very hands-on yeah. in the teams of, whilst I've worked for large organisations, it's always been in a doing capacity mm-hmm. rather than managing people capacity. Mm-hmm. And so did you have a view at the outset that you had a horizon that you wanted to exit the business by or was it more circumstantial that that happened? Um, well, no, we wanted to actually develop the technology. What we found in there, the technology we had developed it was a large manufacturing process. We didn't have the capital base to do that. Right. And w- what we had to do, we developed the technology, found that no one wanted to buy the technology because they already had something in place. So we, then we had to get step in and commercialise it and get it up and that. We commercialised it and started selling and then it became a bit predatory. Okay. We didn't have the funds and, and, and some of the big players, Pacific Dunlop, right. uh, used their market power to squeeze us and we ended up selling the technology to a large New Zealand okay. uh, multinationalist who now operates that plant here in Australia, right. here in Brisbane. But it was a good successful exit for you. It, it, it was, but it was right. a bit hair-raising at, sure. at, at the time because uh, when you're up against the big guys and you're only uh, you know, a, a bit of a, a minnow, yeah. uh, you know, it, was, it was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, uh, when I did my MBA, uh, Pacific Dunlop, was you know held up as being an amazing success story and you know one of the big uh, the big brands to to watch from a strategy point of view. But it's funny how uh, things have a tendency to change, isn't it? Yes, they they were a bit of a dinosaur, and certainly towards the end of when we sold that business, they ended up consolidating and selling off a lot of the a lot mm-hmm. of the businesses, and now it's basically mm. a marketing company, whereas it was a big conglomerate. Yeah, at one point. And so at that point then you uh, moved into your consultancy business? Yes, yes. Uh, the, the project finance advisory business that I, that I set up, uh, because I had a pretty good connection with still in the electricity game, mm-hmm. and uh, back when I was in NRG and also even when I was at Unicomp, I was helping people uh, advise on how they might raise uh, debt packages, and mm-hmm. we're talking, you know, anything from sort of five billion dollars down to a couple hundred million. And I'd done so many of them here mm-hmm. in Australia. They probably, I would say, as a CFO, there probably wouldn't have been many CFOs that had done as much transactional work mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. 
And when I stepped out of it, I still had a lot of linkages with those businesses and people knew that I knew the transactions and knew the businesses, so they'd, they'd get me back. You know, I was competing against the likes of Macquarie banks and okay. the other big yeah. investment banks, but I was fortunate that through my reputation, I was still able to secure a, a lot of work. And I can imagine, I can remember, you know, having five, nearly five years worth of work where I didn't have a break at all going right. to the transaction, which was pretty unusual uh -huh. until the good old GFC come along. So you must be very good at managing uh, your at-home relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very lucky that I've got a, a great wife right. uh, because there's been stages there where we didn't see a lot of one another. Yeah. And somewhere in between we're able to squeeze in three kids. Right. Uh, so yes, I'm lucky that we had a a great arrangement. Uh, I was out there to, to bring the money and her job was to look after the emotional aspects uh, of raising a family, which I think was perhaps a harder job than mine. Oh, look, uh, I, I certainly uh, am very grateful that I get to work full-time because uh, with two young kids, it's uh, it's not for the faint-hearted. You know, I look at these guys who are stay-at-home dads and I uh, take my hat off to them. Uh, uh, it's um, often very thankless uh, work. When I got to be in business myself and set up my boutique advisory company, I had a lot more flexibility in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, once upon a time I never got a chance to see my kids at school or go to right. the sports day. When, it's when I got to that I had the flexibility to do it and I really didn't, I, I, got, I was fortunate enough not to miss out on a lot of their life mm -hmm. when they got as a teenager. Yeah. Um, but I did get to see some of the more emotionally uh, difficult situations to deal with with the teenagers that all of a sudden know right. everything. Yeah. Um, and I had a much better, uh, a much greater empathy for my wife, what right. she had to put up with for the sure. previous 10 years or so. And so it was at that point then that you had your first significant role in the not-for-profit sector, being um, uh, Executive General Manager Corporate Services and CFO with Endeavour Foundation. So what, um, what, uh, facilitated you wanting to step into this space? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you've had a successful corporate life and it was an opportunity to give back, but um, was that a very considered move on your part? Yes, absolutely. It was a very deliberate, uh, but not necessarily easy to execute because mm -hmm. with my background, I found it quite difficult approaching a number of uh, not-for-profits, and I did approach a number, People just saw what was on the resume in right. the background, and they didn't see the relevance to for not-for-profit. So, sorry, to just understand, so you decided you wanted to move into a not-for-profit, so you proactively went out and put yourself in front of organisations. Exactly. Right. And I guess what I could spot was the NDIS was going to transform that sector, mm -hmm. and it was a very similar transformation of the electricity industry, which I'd been involved in mm -hmm. previously. Uh, so I, I saw a lot of parallels and I guess I was trying to convince people that they would need someone with my skills but uh, so it just for people who are listening who aren't familiar with NDIS yes uh, and we could talk about it for hours but just uh, uh, give us a quick summary of what all that's about the National Disability Insurance Scheme really it's uh, it's a change in the way the government's funding the disability sector and it's basically like an insurer, a bit like Medicare. In fact, we pay uh, through our taxes a, a levy for the, the NDIS. And it's about 
uh, costed at about uh, $22 billion. And mm -hmm. it's already been funded largely thereby what we've been paying through Medi our Medicare levy, which many people don't know right. about. Okay. So it's allowing, it's converting a social welfare model where the government gives monies to organisations like Autism Queensland and they develop programs for people with a particular disability. Under the NDIS, um, it reverses, it gives the, the person the choice to make and select their supplier of support or services. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost the con consumerising of the social welfare model. Mm -hmm. Now people have choice mm. or will have choice. And I think people listening who haven't got any awareness because they're not involved in this sector, that's a big deal, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I Absolutely. mean, suddenly uh, organisations are saying, wow, we have to change and become much more customer-centric, much more uh, innovative in the provision of services and go and look at opportunities to either grow or uh, or find ways to remain relevant. Um, it's a, it is a huge undertaking. Absolutely, and, and considering that those organisations, for example, like Autism Queensland has been operating for 50 years. Mm -hmm. It's been operating on a break-even basis basically for 50 years. So you can't put a lot of money away for capital expansion and IT systems and acquisition of real estate and all the things that you need mm -hmm. for. So they've done everything on the smell of an oily rag. Mm -hmm. and. You know, they don't have the latest and greatest. So coming into NDIS when it's more about choice and it's more consumer driven, mm -hmm. you have to be more consumer focused. You have to have the right systems, mm -hmm. IT systems. You have to be able to deliver their needs. Mm -hmm. But there's not a big uh, bankroll there to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's perhaps the biggest challenge. And so you uh, recognised this challenge was happening. You looked at yourself and you thought, I've got a skill set which could be of value. So you went out and essentially started, for want of a better term, knocking on doors saying, I can help you. Do you want me? Yeah. Uh, so how many different organisations do you think you would have spoken to before uh, you uh, uh, joined Endeavour? Uh, there would have been dozens. Okay. Uh, and it was usually going through the uh, recruitment process, applying right. for jobs, that, that route. Yeah. And then people, I think... My problem was they had seen that I'd been the executive director of a large US multinational. Sure. Why would you want to come back to be looking after corporate service or why would you mm. want to be a manager? And mm -hmm. Yes, if I, if I was in my recruiting mode, I would sort of look at some of those things and raise a question mm -hmm. mark and say, well, this person is overqualified. Mm -hmm. That was my biggest barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. I think I was too, too qualified and the background perhaps wasn't a neat fit with uh, with the not-for-profit sector. Right, and so why was Endeavour different then? Endeavour is a very entrepreneurial organisation, uh, and the CEO David Barbagello was, you know, he, he's a very entrepreneurial guy. Yeah. And I think he could see and had the vision that uh, that, that you needed uh, a different skill set. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I'd I'd probably put it down to to David and, and perhaps uh, some of the other, the chairman, a few others could see what was on the horizon. Right. And uh, was that a job that was in the open market being recruited or you just uh, got in front of David and said, here I am? I didn't know David beforehand. Right. Uh, I, uh, I, it was advertised in the paper. Right. Uh, and uh, basically went from a traditional application to interview. Right. Uh, and I don't think I was the preferred candidate originally. Okay. I think someone else uh, uh, 
this, they were keen on someone else and that didn't work and I was, I was the second choice. Right. And so therefore, a couple of years uh, in this role of Executive General Manager of Corporate Services and CFO and now uh, CEO of Autism Queensland, which takes us to uh, you know, where you, what your current situation. And before we start talking about that, um, obviously uh, you had a broad range of exposure and experience across a range of sectors, which has been part of the way you've developed yourself professionally. But for a lot of people who are in this audience, and I talk to these people all the time, they are seeing the not-for-profit sector as a very viable new career path for them um, uh, for similar motivations to you or just because of the fact that, uh, that you know, the sector is interesting to them. What, what do you think are some of the qualities you've developed over your career which have enabled you to move out of that corporate life into now running um, and not insignificant not-for-profit? Um. I would say it comes back to those nuts and bolts tasks. Being commercial, mm -hmm. having some of the financial skills for me has been really important. I think where the not-for-profit falls down is there's not a high level of financial expertise that sits in there, okay. in commerciality. There's great skills in terms of people and all, the, all of those maturing, supporting things, but there's not that hard knows business element too. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it can just be that. There mm -hmm. has to be a blending of that commerciality and uh, the, the people, uh, the maturing uh, and, and being more focused on, on an outcome which is more important than shareholders mm -hmm. or just a profit per se. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it will transition over time. It will become more commercial, but I think you're at the step I think you can go from step one from being that social welfare model into the highly commercial environment. Mm -hmm. If you do that, there's some really big issues, people issues, systems mm -hmm. issues, business issues. So it's a bit of a transitionary mm -hmm. process. And what I, what I think I'm good at is I think I'm good with people. I think mm -hmm. I'm good with numbers and the commercial side of it. But I sort of blend both of those skills. So I think I see myself as being a stepping stone probably mm -hmm. in five years' time. Mm -hmm. It might be quite a different person. They might be more what I would call marketing or consumer-driven, whereas at the moment I think there's a lot of restructuring, there's a lot of commercial right. issues, and it's getting your business set up which so it's sustainable, mm -hmm. and then the next phase, mm -hmm. as I say, I think it will be quite different. Mm, that's interesting. So yeah, what you're suggesting is that uh, uh, in this period of... Uh, uh, approaching and then uh, entering into the world of NDIS, uh, a CEO probably needs to have a very uh, strong commercial orientation and perhaps make some uh, massive and uh, 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 changes in terms of the way the organisations run. And once that's run its course, then it's time then to take the business into the next phase. And that's probably true across the entire sector, isn't it? Not just autism Queensland. Absolutely, it's, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same issue that confronted with. And my experience in mergers and acquisition, and I guess transitioning new businesses under an, under a, a with someone acquires you, you have to fit it, get all the systems right. There are a whole range of people restructuring, uh, and that's exactly what mm. will happen. 
in in the disability sector. Mm-hmm. And, and what about uh, a lot of the employees who work in not-for-profits have joined the organisation uh, through a heart-led desire, they're passionate about mm-hmm. the cause, they may have immediate family members who are affected by whatever the not-for-profit is orientated towards. Um, you've come in as CEO, you've got to um, drive significant change, but how do you um, consciously temper the way that you manage in order to make allowance for the culture that you've inherited? Uh, it's, there is definitely a cultural change there and you have to be very deliberate uh, and considered in the things that you do. Just simple things with language which sometimes in, you know, in that commercial world are not all that important. But mm-hmm. if you use the wrong language in the not-for-profit, particularly in the disability sector, you can offend people sure. really easily be- yeah. because you don't understand the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. So I think there is definitely uh, a sensitivity which you have to be closely attuned to. And it's not just language, it's in behaviours. And sometimes you know that you've done something wrong but you don't know what that is, right? Uh, and uh, you know, I'm certainly still uh, learning uh, that. Um, you know, and I think that also you need to, whilst you need to move back towards the uh, and understand those needs more, you actually have to be able to pull people forward mm-hmm. and lead as well. Because if you leave that sector, employees, even clients, and that, and that, well, you have to understand and paint a bit of a roadmap for them. Or where the future is. That means it, there's a bit of uncomfort or discomfort for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's not just me as someone who sure. might be not politically astute to some of the language issues, but it's also explaining to people what's the, sta- what's the key to sustainability. Mm-hmm. It's profit, or maybe profit's a dirty word. It's, it's about it's certainly not no profit. It's yes. about having a surplus and being sustainable. And uh, you know, I prefer the use of the word sustainability than profitability because you have to have a surplus there. And people in this sector understand that you know, if there's no cash there, you can't pay wages and the business won't exist. And everyone relies on the government in historically, but that won't happen in the next few years. And it will be just like, as I say to most people, it's just like the, the carpenter or the plumber or anything. We have to find new business, we have to collect the money, we have to do all of those things. And if we sit on our butts and do nothing, yeah. well, there's no money coming in. Sure. And uh, obviously you have to be able to deliver the services, whether it's plumbing or carpentry or provision of services to your uh, clients with autism in a way that is... Uh, at the very least, um, uh, uh, break even, um, leading to profit. Absolutely, it's it's about being person centric. It's being consumer driven. It's all those things about consumer. It's not about the social welfare model, which was about people like me saying what's best yeah. for the autism community. Sure, that's putting the cart before the horse. But it worked, and it probably. There's some reasons for it, but now we are reversing the cart and the horse, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, which is the right way, we're giving people choice, we're giving people opportunity, we're giving them what their needs are, not what we think is the right Yeah. Thing. And so you've been in the sector now for about three years. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what would you say are the elements of working in this sector that you most enjoy? Um, I, I really enjoy the people and seeing the commitment. Uh, 
of the of the people there who are sometimes it's through lived experience sometimes it's not mm -hmm. you have an incredible uh, commitment for a, for a lot of the employees I used to see incredible commitment from professionals in the commercial sector but it was usually driven by how big the bonus was sure. or how much was I going to get paid yeah that is not the philosophy that exists here mm -hmm. in the not-for-profit sector for a lot of people it's about doing the right thing and you know I've seen some incredible feature to do an all-nighter in the uh, in the commercial world was the norm f for me right I see that even here every now and then okay but it's for different reasons sure so that's what you most enjoy what would you say uh, have been the elements of working in this sector that you've least enjoyed um, I think there's some really important governance issues that sit out there and you know, I think traditionally the sector has been governed by boards and that the people who are volunteers mm -hmm. and they come with a particular skill set and, uh, and uh, experiences. There's some really excellent people out there but mm -hmm. they're also, the sector is littered with people with good intentions and work at an emotional level but don't operate from more of a professional commercial. Mm -hmm. So I think the tr the the transformation of the sector into and the rationalisation of the disability sector uh, needs a different focus from particularly the, the board level and a lot of the people that traditionally been there don't have that experience mm -hmm. and then people like I come into an organisation you're almost having to educate those people at a quite a low level right. than what you would be accustomed to right. sure. in, in the commercial world. Okay. Now, one of the motivations for this podcast is for people who aspire to be C-suite executives uh, to learn from those who have walked the path before them. So if you were to talk about some of your philosophies around career and leadership and so on uh, for this audience, you know, what, what would be some of the, the things that are most important to you that you'd like to share? Uh, if, I, if I go back to the early part of the discussion, I, I made the point a couple of times that I made my own opportunities. Yeah. I stayed for a couple of years in the job and then moved on. Mm -hmm. you know, not everyone follows that, subscribes to that philosophy. Mm -hmm. That's been a really important one for me. Uh, another really important issue for me has been uh, to, when you're working with people, to try to get, surround yourself with really bright people and mm -hmm. never ever be become paranoid about the, the office unit are smarter than you because mm -hmm. I think if you're in an organisation where you're really smart people you, you can achieve great outcomes but never be surround yourself with clones mm -hmm. make sure that you have great diversity diversity gender you know, in every form because I've always found that traditional problem solving an engineering solution may actually uh, or sorry a, a financial solution might sometimes originate the solution that is from a an engineer or right. a or a marketer because mm. they look at things a little bit differently and that's what I see is the value mm. of of diversity. And I remember when uh, De Bono had that six hat uh, decision making process. Do you remember that? No, no, no. Uh, where uh, there were six different coloured hats. So one needed to be a pessimist. One needed to be an optimist. One needed to come from an engineering sort of orientation. One from a sales and marketing and you would intentionally make people wear hats which were not what was their normal go-to position. And uh, I haven't heard that for a long time, but for a while that was quite yes. a trendy uh, thing. And uh, um, I mean, certainly I ask this question in this podcast a lot, and, and 
people quite um, regularly say surround yourself with people who are smart and ambitious and, and don't be afraid to bring people into your team who are better than you because it, so, but I'm coming back to your point about um, uh, moving for opportunity, which is, um, uh, nobody's brought that up before, um, which I think is um, interesting. So for people who are listening who are perhaps in a role, what are some of the signs that they should watch out for to let them know that to themselves it's time to move? Do you understand what I'm yes, asking? Yes, yes. Yeah. I think it's, I'd say also it's a risky strategy. Yeah. No doubt about that. Right. Uh, but for, for me, it wasn't risky. Uh, and I usually set myself some objectives very early in the process, what, okay. I, what I wanted to achieve. And you know, that wasn't, and that might change over, over time. But, yeah. but it's, clear, it's important to have in your mind very clearly where you're wanting to get right and what are some key milestones to achieve and once you get to that you can you can either then set a new milestone or a new time frame and uh, it but it may not necessarily be where you are you've got to be able to spot an opportunity i think that's really important because sometimes you can jump out of the pot into the fire oh sure that's interesting so basically you're saying you get into a role, you intentionally set some goals to achieve, uh, noting that when they're achieved, that could be the precursor is time to move. Yes. Right, and I think that very few people would do that, well, uh, with any kind of um, strategic intent. Um, so that's really interesting. Okay, great. And, and I say it's a risky strategy. Sure. And I think I'm a, I'm a risk taker. Right, and it's worked for you. Yes. Oh, great. Okay, um, what else? Um, um, the, I guess the older I get, the more I'm learning to be patient. I think I was very impatient okay. and demanding very early in my career. As I progress further down the track, I think being tolerant is perhaps another way of, of putting it. And right, and and helping people and understanding the importance of mentoring mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I guess once upon a time. I didn't think about it, but I think back in my career, I had some, a couple of mentors early in my career that just, mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for them, I don't know where I would have gotten in my career. And what I try to do, particularly now with younger employees, is to try to give them some context to where I come from and hopefully motivate them and get them to feel as they, that they can approach me at, at any time because I'd like to be able to think in... 20 or 30 years time and that person is thinking back on their career and they say uh, Rod was an important point or I mean, that was an important point in my career Rod right. was a really had a big influence on the success later on in life. Sure I mean, look that's one of my keen motiva- uh, major motivations for doing this podcast is that uh, there are many many people that would never have the opportunity to hear people like you talk for an hour about your careers and some of the decision points that you came to and so on so uh I hope that people listening in uh, uh, feel that this is a quasi-mentoring type uh, <laughs> experience. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and so, uh, obviously, we've spoken a lot about work and we've um, about your career and so on. But you know, what do you do outside of work to keep the petrol tank full and uh, and keep you enthusiastic about life? Uh, do a lot of relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I guess 
we're spending more time with my wife now and, and uh, some of the things that we weren't able to do, right. a, bit of, a bit of travel. Uh, I like to keep fit now. Okay. You know, I'm not as, after a, a sort of a knee reconstruction, a few things like that, I can't do a lot of the things that I want to do, but right. I think it's really important to keep fit yeah. and you can do that in many ways. So you know, I'm sort of now, you know, I've... Uh, I'm going to retire up to the Sunshine Coast. I've bought a house there, so now getting into kayaking okay. and, and other things with with a bit of fun in that oh, are really important to me. Um, and trying to be supportive of my kids at uni and and helping them because I sometimes think that dads, well, I, I, personally, I I found it difficult to actually mentor them on right. things because I'm being too impatient and want them to do, right. go from A to B or go to the solution immediately and not really appreciate the benefit of the journey for them. So I think I have to do a bit of backtracking and uh, and fix some of those bridges that uh, okay. which are, might need a little bit of mending as well. Oh, fair enough. Well, uh, you know, I think that kids rarely, you know, regard their parents as being the right people to give them <laughs> advice about life anyway. So. That's uh, pretty normal, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Oh, great. So look, we're uh, just about at the end of this uh, podcast. So before we go, is there anything we haven't discussed today or any final things that you'd like to leave the, uh, the listeners with? There's nothing in there that pops out to me other than, you know, I guess just as the broad summary, I think when you go through life and you go through your career, if you do the right thing by people and you're in tune with their needs and you're, I think it's, for yourself as an individual, it's much better to have been kind during the life and understanding than being that very ruthless uh, mould mm. in business. Or it can be when you get to be a manager, it can be tough. You have to make hard decisions. But I think you always have to be in tune with uh, the emotions of people and be receptive to some of those needs. Uh, and when you get the f- further up the tree you get, the harder that becomes because you have to make some mm-hmm. tough decisions mm-hmm. along the way. Uh, but I think it's very important to keep that in right at the front of your mind that you're doing it for the right reasons and it's not driven by self-interest. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, again, you know, uh, uh, words like be kind, be nice, uh, uh, have a, you know, uh, an orientation towards being of service. I imagine if I was doing this podcast 10 years ago, perhaps even five years ago, those words would not be mentioned very often, but more often than not now, people are really starting to revert back to it's these underlying human needs that are uh, uh, so necessary in order to have a fulfilled life and be successful. I've certainly come across my fair share of bosses who didn't demonstrate (laughs) any of those qualities, so maybe I'm trying to make up for some of those Um, things, but I think as an individual, you find it much more rewarding if if you adopt some of those personal philosophies. Sure. Well, Rod, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Well, I trust you enjoyed this conversation with Rod today. I've known Rod for some time, and I've always found him to be an engaging and charismatic leader, and certainly a man who's prepared to take risks in developing his own career, and he's achieved great outcomes as a result of this. So I look forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast, and in the meantime, have a fantastic day. Bye.